Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, the Smithsonian's Eric Hintz reveals the key ingredients that make a place innovative and why he featured Hartford in the Smithsonian's exhibition, Places of Invention in Washington, D.C., on view now through 2020. My name is Jody Blankenship. I am the CEO of CHS, and this is the first public program that we are hosting as part of the Smithsonian Affiliates Program. In addition to recognizing the high standard of work that we do here at CHS, the Smithsonian Affiliate Program allows us special access to scholars and curators of the Smithsonian. Tonight's speaker is Eric Hintz. Eric is a historian with the Lemelson Center for the Study of Innovation and Invention at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Tonight he will present research underlying Places of Innovation, an interactive, family-friendly exhibition at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Hartford is one of six communities featured in the exhibition, and Eric conducted a portion of the research for the project here at the Connecticut Historical Society. And now, I'll turn it over to Eric. Thank you, Jody, and thanks to the Connecticut Historical Society for inviting me back. It's a great honor to be talking to you guys tonight, and thanks to everyone for coming out. This exhibition that I'm talking about is at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. So it's on the mall in Washington, D.C. We're affectionately known as the nation's attic. We've got three million objects and artifacts, everything from the Star Spangled Banner that flew over Fort McHenry in the War of 1812 and inspired Francis Scott Key to write the national anthem. That's a, that's a good one. We've got Dor- Dorothy's Ruby Slippers. From the Wizard of Oz, Babe Ruth's Baseball, Kermit the Frog, you name it. I work at the Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. So this is an endowed center within the museum. It was endowed by uh, an inventor, a prolific inventor named Jerome Lemelson. Jerry had something like 700 patents on all kinds of things from toys to industrial manufacturing, machine vision, this kind of stuff. And he got very wealthy licensing those patents to like Toyota, Mitsubishi, and the big three automakers. So he's our patron. Uh, The center was established in 1995. And our mission is basically to further the understanding of invention and innovation and its importance in American history. Uh, So we started working in earnest in 2011, and uh, it opened uh, on July 1st, 2015. Its run is for about five years, so or as long as it takes for us to figure out what the next one's going to be. So it might be 2020, 2021, something like that. It's about 3,300 square feet. And then six case studies of different communities around the United States. If you think about how you're often introduced to the history of invention, it's this heroic model of the independent inventor. It's Edison, it's Tesla, it's Alexander Graham Bell, these kinds of things. Whitney here and other folks from Connecticut. But we know, if we really think about it, that invention is always embedded in some kind of social context. Invention almost never truly happens alone. There's always assistance. Uh, there are um, capitalists that help raise the money. There are uh, people that help manufacture the thing and sell it. And then there's just the sort of resources that are drawn upon in the particular community where this person, the inventor, lives. And in a place like Hartford, you have lots of inventors. And so they're talking to each other. And so we thought it would be interesting to sort of look at this social component of invention and, and ask the question, what is it about certain places and certain times in American history that have made them hot spots of invention? The other thing that was sort of motivating this is there's all this kind of pressure now to 
invent and be innovative, right? You know, there's this push for STEM education, and we know the uh, economic impact of places like Silicon Valley. And so it was worth it to us to sort of look at this question in the long view. Long before there was Silicon Valley, you had places like Hartford that were huge economic engines. It was one of the wealthiest cities in the United States at one time. So we kind of wanted to take a, a long look at this question and see if there were other communities that we could feature uh, across the span of U.S. history and take a, a look at the, the, this question more broadly. And so we're kind of asking the question, you know, what is it about certain places uh, that um, sparks invention and innovation? Let's go on a journey through different places at different times in American history to meet some of these people, where they lived, where they worked, uh, the risks they took, and so forth. People have been thinking about this question for a long time. The earliest uh, citation I ha have up there is Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations. So going all the way back to the 1776, he's sort of asking, what is it about Britain that makes it different from places on the continent? Uh, what is it about division of labor? How do we sort of organize ourselves for innovation uh, on the precipice of the Industrial Revolution? Another classical economist, Alfred Marshall, was asking some of these questions. You know, why is it that all the knife makers are all in one town? In Britain, you know, why is it that coal and steel and, and the Industrial Revolution is sort of centered in the north of England, right? Why did the Industrial Revolution start in certain places? And that, you know, there's this sort of long tradition of economic geography going all the way back to these classical economists. Then there's a second sort of resurgence of um, research on these questions in the 90s. Silicon Valley is hugely successful. Uh, in the 70s and 80s with the introduction of the personal computer. You've got places like the Research Triangle, and so scholars are trying to figure out how, how does this happen and how do we replicate it? So there's this uh, real flourishing of scholarship in the 90s where people are looking at these questions. Michael Porter at Harvard did a lot of influential work. David Meyer, who's done a lot of stuff on Connecticut history, is sort of looking at that question historically at networks of machinists all up and down New England. And folks have probably heard of Richard Florida, the creative class, and what is it about certain cities that makes them really vibrant and places where innovation takes off. Now, some of these things that I've been talking about are fairly conceptual. Uh, we get a lot of kids in our museum. And so the big challenge for us is how do you take these sort of concepts and in intellectual geography, the social context of invention, and how do you sort of whittle it down and make it accessible to 4 million plus visitors a year who come from all over the place, and from all over the world and may not have thought about that kind of question. So that was our sort of big museological challenge, is how do we, we take these concepts and, and make them accessible to our visitors. In the Hartford section, we actually created an assembly line. One of the big conceptual things we wanted to get across is that when it comes to precision manufacturing and mass production, which was pioneered in many ways here in Hartford, it's about the division of labor, specialized machine tools, and these kinds of assembly lines where you put things together. And so we've got a little challenge. We have some wire, little pieces of straight wire, but we say we want you to make this thing, and it's like a little, like a, a picture holder. So you, they bend the wire, and there's a little right angle, and then there's a little circle at the top, and you can put like your card or a photo in it. It's like a little photo holder. Each of these jigs does something specific. The first one kind of makes the round bottom, and this does the right angle. And so you sort of get the idea of uh, specialized machine tools, and what it means to divide labor and things like that in a simple way. And it's really, really popular. We go through so much wire and we find these little picture holders like all over the museum and even out on the mall. So the security guards hate us because they're like, you know, there's kids poking each other, but um, it's mostly fine. 
we have kind of two videos running in each section. The first one is what we call Why Here, Why Now? This is kind of like the elevator pitch for why Hartford or Silicon Valley is important and what kind of things were happening there. And then the second one we call Connections. And that's trying to get across the idea that the folks in these places kind of all knew each other and how they intersected and how they switched jobs and how um, some of these connections and cross-pollinations happened uh, within the confines of this particular place. We focus on a number of these, um, what we call 21st century skills, things like adaptability, collaboration, communication, risk-taking. One of the things that we found in, in Hartford is that the the processes that you use for making a gun can be transferred to a sewing machine and a bicycle and an automobile and a typewriter. And that idea of transferable information or a technique was really powerful. And so we sort of asked the question, have you ever solved a problem in one area of your life by adapting ideas from others? How did we go about selecting the case studies? As I mentioned, there are six featured in the gallery. And this was one of the hardest things to do, and we had a lot of great meetings as we were putting together the exhibition. The first thing we realized is we couldn't be comprehensive. We, we wanted to start with some familiar places, but also some that were surprising. We also wanted to search for diversity. We didn't want you know, all East Coast stories or all West Coast stories. We wanted to try to have some geographic diversity, also temporal diversity. So our oldest case study is uh, Hartford, and we're focusing on a period of about 50 years from 1850 to 1900. And the most recent one is from the 2010s. We wanted to also reflect the diversity of our visitors. And so we wanted to see, uh, seek stories that could feature some diversity in terms of race and gender and things like that. But I put an asterisk there because one of the hazards of, of studying the history of technology and the history of, of invention is that it tends to be a very male-dominated field. And so this was a, a real struggle for us, and you'll definitely see that in Hartford. Um, unfortunately, it's pretty much all white men in terms of the history that we were able to present. We wanted to feature a range of technologies, not just computers. Our museum, when it was originally opened in 1964, was called the Museum of History and Technology. So it really had a technological basis in the beginning. And so we had a lot of great things to choose from for our collections, and so that was one of our our points as well is we really wanted to feature our collections and where it made sense, uh, some strategic loans from other places around the nation. And we also wanted to document an emerging 21st century place of invention and, and see what it might look like today uh, to have uh, an emerging place of invention. So we, we we'll talk about Fort Collins, Colorado. The first one is Silicon Valley. And then we moved to the Bronx, New York with the birth of hip hop. Medical Alley, Minnesota. This is uh, Twin Cities. It's about um, medical de devices, pacemakers, stuff like that. Hartford, which I'll focus on today. I worked on that one, as well as Silicon Valley. Uh, Hollywood, California, in the Golden Age, focusing on the technology there, um, Technicolor cameras, animation, sound on film. And uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, that's the emerging one, which is, has a lot to do around Colorado State University, uh, inventions of sustainability and clean energy, batteries, things like that. The Silicon Valley section, really focusing on just a kind of about a, a 10 or 20 year, about a 20 year period, 1970s and 1980s, and that was strategic too, just to sort of delimit what we were looking at. So I knew that I could probably talk about the emergence of personal computing in that era, but I didn't want to get into the internet, I didn't have enough space, you know, I don't talk about smartphones, I sort of look at this specific period. Have some great objects, everything from one of the first uh, personal computer kits, the Altair 1975, the first mouse, 
Looks like a bomb switch. It's one of my favorite artifacts, really cool. And then, it's hard to believe this, but it's been more than 30 years now, the Apple Macintosh, which I had growing up, is now old enough to be in a museum. So, uh, people love that, and this case is really popular. So the Bronx, New York. I mentioned that in terms of um, choosing case studies, we wanted to make some surprising selections and also do some juxtapositions. So we very intentionally put the Bronx, New York next to Silicon Valley. Both of them are in the 70s and early 80s. If you think about Silicon Valley, it's West Coast, it's Stanford, it's highly resourced. If you think about the Bronx at this time, and if you've ever seen like the French Connection or Taxi Driver, right? New York City was a pretty gritty place uh, at that time, and the Bronx was in pretty bad shape. And yet, out of that pretty desperate situation, it flourished this really amazing art form and some amazing technologies. The same hacker ethos, right? If you think about um, some of these hackers in the 70s and 80s in Silicon Valley that were taking things apart and putting them back together in different ways with computing, it's basically the same thing in the Bronx. They're taking apart musical instruments, putting them back together in new, new ways, and and sort of hacking turntables and music players. So we have some great technological story to tell about hip-hop with mixers and soundboards and, and scratching and things like that. So we have some great artifacts. And one of the things that we learned, which I think is cool, is folks in the Bronx would actually hack into the street power, right? They would get electricity from the street lights. So when you actually scratch on the turntable, the lights flicker. It's very cool. We had just great objects, Grandmaster Flash's uh, Techniques Turntable, Fab Five Freddy's uh, Boombox, and great artwork. A, a, a very similar do-it-yourself ethos in the Bronx uh, as we find at the exact same time on the opposite coast uh, in California. Scratching is a technique in hip-hop music where you put a record on a record player and it's playing, but then you actually put your hand on the record and like you intentionally drag the needle across the record to make a kind of sound, and that's like a musical element of the, of the, of hip-hop music. I mean, this was part of the innovations that they were creating in terms of being able to mix two different records playing. So, I mean, if you, if you boil it down, they've t part of the, in the technical innovation of hip-hop, but also the artistic innovation, is turning something that plays back music into something that actually makes music. They're turning a record player into an instrument. Medical Alley, Minnesota. This is the story of the University of Minnesota's Heart Hospital, Pioneers in Open Heart Surgery. It's also the story of Medtronic, Cardiac Pacemakers, Inc., Kipps Bay Medical. This is about the medical device industry, so if you have a pacemaker or a defibrillator, this is kind of the birth of that industry in the Twin Cities. So we have some cool Medtronic external pacemakers, right? We think of this now, which is implanted, but they actually began external, right? You would wear kind of a... I don't know, like a bib or something that held the thing external and they would do an external pacing before they got small, the components got small enough to actually implant it. And you would need, if you're doing open heart surgery, things like a, a bubble oxygenator so that you could, you know, loop the blood and keep it oxygenated as you're on the operating table. Hollywood, California, golden age. So the big object there is the Technicolor camera. And so we're talking about uh, color, uh, we're talking about um, sound on film and animation, Disney is kind of coming on board at this era. Camera used um, during The Wizard of Oz, and a piece of the script from The Wizard of Oz, and this is the moment where the film goes from black and white to color. And, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore, and I just think it's wonderful that we have that artifact in the exhibition. 
Fort Collins. I mentioned we wanted to document an emerging place of invention. So as I mentioned, this is around Colorado State University, sustainability, batteries, clean energy. They also do a lot of brewing in uh, Fort Collins, uh, Fat Tire, New Belgium Brewery, this kind of stuff. And a lot of those breweries we found are like zero emission uh, breweries that are trying to be very uh, sustainable in the way they conduct their brewing. You know, they plant a tree and try to be carbon neutral and things like that. A lot of a big bicycle culture there in Fort Collins. When you boil all this down, what does it mean? You know, so what's the recipe? If you want to build one of these things, how do you do it? Well, it's not so simple. But we use kind of a, um, a, a food uh, analogy, you know, so you can identify what some of the ingredients are, but there's not exactly a recipe. So what are some of these ingredients? We found that geography matters, right? So we know that, and I'll say this um, when I talk more about Hartford, the Connecticut River plays a huge role in the development of Hartford. Clusters often have a long prehistory. Government investment is huge. A lot of Silicon Valley and definitely Hartford is built on government contracts. The government is in some ways the best angel investor of all. Charismatic individuals. It seems like in each of these places there's one or two people that just are unstoppable, irrepressible, right? You think about Samuel Colt, the Larry Ellison or Elon Musk of his time, right? I mean, just uh, a larger-than-life figure. Steve Jobs, right? Knowledge base. You know, we, we think about Silicon Valley and we think about Stanford, or I mentioned Colorado State University, but sometimes the knowledge base is in a different form. So if you think about the Hartford mechanics, it's all about apprenticeships and learning on the job. In the case of the hip-hop, uh, section in the Bronx, Grandmaster Flash uh, had been trained at a Votech. He was an electrician. So as he's taking apart these um, mixers and, and turntables, he actually knows exactly what he's doing because he's trained, so he has a knowledge base. One of the things that is characteristic of places of invention is the spin-off phenomenon. We see that here in Hartford. So you have Colt as kind of an anchor firm and then lots of spin-offs like former employees like uh, Pratt & Whitney start their firm, Billings & Spencer. Down at South Meadow, prone to flooding, when Colt decides to build his armory there, he creates a huge earthenwork dam, and to secure the earth, he plants willow trees with deep roots. Now, over time, the willow trees stop, drop, start to drop branches, and Colt, ever the entrepreneur, decides, well, I'll make a second business making wicker baskets and wicker chairs and wicker settees and wicker furniture. So, same thing happens. Medtronic spins off Kips Bay and Cardiac Pacemaker Innovations and, and St. Jude. Tight-knit communities. When people know each other, they talk and they share ideas. And we found that that's true everywhere. In, in the Medical Alley case, a lot of these folks, the surgeons and engineers, they all went to the same Lutheran church. Hartford was a much smaller town back in 1850, right? These people ran into each other all over the place. They really knew each other. Third places, that this sort of gets to the cross-pollination as well. One of the things we found is that there's almost always some place that's not your workplace and it's not your home where people go to hang out and shoot the bull. It's a tavern, it's a diner, and that was true in, in almost every place. And Oldenburg has this uh, idea, he's a scholar who has this idea of the third place, barbershops, diners, taverns, that kind of thing. The, the hangout that's Charter O'Call, this is kind of uh, one of the meeting places after work that Colt set up where you could go to the reading room and read and try to better yourself. They would have ballroom dances and they had the Colts uh, Armory Band uh, rehearsed there. And this was uh, what we consider to be the hangout in Hartford. And then uh, places of invention also have finite lifespans. And so, you know, the Bronx probably isn't the center of hip hop anymore. 
Hartford at one time was the richest city in America, not so much anymore, at least inside the city limits of Hartford. So, you know, we can identify some common ingredients, but there's no recipe, right? I'm a historian, so I believe in historical contingency. These things could have turned out differently, right? Colt actually started his business in Patterson, New Jersey, and it failed. And so he comes back to Hartford. Well, what if he had actually made it in Patterson, right? Would, right, would we be talking about Patterson? I, I never want to say that there's a recipe because, you know, I, I'm a big believer in historical contingency. And, and we certainly know that there are other places uh, where people have tried to replicate these models and they just don't work. Why Hartford? The short answer is it's one of the birthplaces of precision manufacturing and mass production in the United States. People think Detroit and Henry Ford, but it really begins here in Connecticut and in the Connecticut River Valley at places like Springfield Armory and at the Colts Armory. Two of the reasons we love Hartford, right? It's kind of a surprising story. If you're only sort of driving by on I-91, you might not think of Hartford as a place of invention, but there's a deep history here that we can tell. Temporal, it's the oldest case study, right? We're going back to 1850. We get to show a range of technologies and it really, we have a lot of great stuff from our collections that we can showcase. The tagline is, Factory Town puts the pieces together in explosive new ways. Everything from guns to bicycles to sewing machines to cars. Situating Hartford geographically, and looking at the prehistory of, of this a little bit, Hartford is situated in a great place. It's on the river. You have access to New York City and uh, the entire Atlantic world. Uh, you're also, once steam comes, the railroad halfway between Boston and New York. And it's just a generally vibrant place of invention across the state. And in fact, it was the highest per capita patenting rate of any state for many, many, many years, from 1790 to 1930. So, you know, statewide, this was a, a hot spot, not just in Hartford. And that is reflected all through the uh, exhibits here. Okay, the river is key, right? So I don't want to be a geographic determinist, but as I said, you know, Hartford doesn't exist except for the river, right? Long before manufacturing, it's about um, trade, and it's about agriculture, which I'm reminded of every time I drive past the tobacco drying sheds from the airport. In many ways, you know, the insurance and banking industry come up first. You have to protect your shipments, that's insurance. And then what do you do with all the profits? That's banking. And so long before you have Wall Street or capital markets like we know today, what do you do with all your profits? Where do you invest it, right? This is kind of the story, maybe oversimplified, but you know, the river brings trade, brings you know, the profits from trade. That's your early venture capital. It's agriculture and insurance and banking that invests in some of these early manufacturing schemes. So I mentioned government's role, and I'm glad uh, James Wolsey is here from um, Springfield National Historic Site. When you think about gun making, an artisan makes the entire gun lock, stock, and barrel. That's great, you have bespoke guns, but it's hard to make a lot of them quickly. And if you're a, a new country trying to defend itself against the old empire, you want a lot of guns. And so trying to figure out how to make more guns more quickly is one of the huge drivers of uh, why you get um, interchangeable parts, uniformity, division of labor, machine tools, and so forth. And so it takes a long time, and this actually starts in the federal armories at Harper's Ferry and Springfield. And it takes, I don't know, 50, 60 years, I have 40 years here, but it's really, there's a lot of experimentation that's happening with government money long before it gets into the, gets to Hartford. They're trying to figure out how to do interchangeable parts manufacturing. And government is huge because Colt and others uh, like him, um, Smith and Wesson, Remington, whoever, they're sort of borrowing the techniques that the government is pioneering, and then once they get into business, 
you don't want to have a single source for these guns, right? So there's a lot of contracts that go out, and so Colt is basically built on government, um, army, and then police contracts. So the government figures hugely in this story. Sam Colt, arguably the most important figure in this time period in, uh, in Car Hartford's industrial history. Colt patents the revolver in 1836 or so, fails in Patterson, but then comes back to Hartford, and during the Mexican War, the cavalry wants uh, shooters that they can shoot from horseback, so it's a good time to be a gun maker if you think about it, right? It's, the, it's like the Mexican War, the Civil War, wars in Europe, I mean, so there's a huge market for what he has to produce. And while he patents the, the revolver, and that's really important, arguably it's his process, right? His manufacturing process where he can make not just one, but thousands of guns uh, is really what puts uh, Colt on the map. Inside the armory, all kinds of things happening. It's loud, it's smelly, it's hot, it's noisy, there's things clanking. I just love this quote from Mark Twain. One can stumble over a bar of iron as he goes in one end and find it transformed into a burnished, symmetrical, deadly navy as he passes out the other. And the navy is the navy revolver. Elisha Root, this is the superintendent. He's making axes. And a historian once said, you know, the, the credit for the revolver belongs to Colt, but further made largely belongs to Root. So he's the ace in the hole. Uh, Colt is kind of the outside guy. He's schmoozing the generals, selling the guns, right? Root is the inside guy. He's making it happen on the factory floor, and he's a genius. Uh, he really designs a lot of the specialized machine tools that are at work on the floor. Here is an object that we borrowed from Dave Corrigan and uh, Dean Nelson at the Museum of Connecticut History. These are the inspection gauges, right? So it's not just about cranking the thing out, but it's about quality control. So you have to uh, compare your piece against the, uh, the platonic ideal. So part of what's so impressive to me about Colt is not just the revolver, not just you know, the factory, but it's the comprehensive vision of, uh, of what he had for, for Coltsville and, and this whole industrial village. Here's the uh, earthenwork dams. There's the willow trees, the factory in the Onion Dome, we all know. There's the offices. Got a little port here, right? Raw materials in, guns out. Workers housing, Church of the Good Shepherd. Baseball field, right? What do you gotta do after hours? And then there's the, uh, the mansion arms mirror up here. Colt dies in 1862 at the height of the Civil War. There's an armory fire, he rebuilds it. But I'm just impressed with, it's not just the factory, it's everything else, which is so, so interesting to me. Here's an image I ripped off from Dave Corgan. The genealogy. Talked about a knowledge base, right? They called Colt's armory the College of Mechanics because Root was a genius and all these um, mechanics would come to work from him and, and learn the techniques of precision manufacturing. And then in this spin-off phenomenon, they would sort of learn what they were doing and then go start their own firms. And you can kind of get a, a sense of this from this drawing. And, and this quote from David Hounshall talks about how folks like uh, Francis Pratt, Amos Whitney, Fairfield, Spencer, Billings went off to start their own firms, and we recognize those names. But one of the great stories that I love is there's one factory, it's on Capitol Avenue, but that produces several different kinds of materials here in, in, in Hartford, and it really gets to this idea of the general applicability of armory practice. If you can make a trigger for a gun and create the tooling to do that, you can probably also figure out how to make a bobbin for a sewing machine or a gear for a bicycle 
or um, a differential for a car or keys for a typewriter. You see where I'm going with this, right? Once you sort of understand the general techniques, it has applicability everywhere for all kinds of different products. This particular factory has several different firms that made everything from guns and tools, Robbins and Lawrence, Sharps rifles, weed sewing machines. Pope eventually buys out weed and makes bicycles and cars there. And I'm probably forgetting some others, but um, a lot happening just under one roof at different times. Christian Sharps, Colt isn't the only gun maker in Hartford. Christian Sharps, you might have uh, heard of the idea of a sharpshooter. That's Christian Sharps, I guess he had a very good gun. We have the patent model that he, um, back in the day, he had to actually submit a model to the uh, patent office. There's his patent model from our collection. He apprentices at one of the federal armories, not at Springfield, but in Har Harbor's Ferry, learns gun making trade, decides to improve on that, and um, patents this breech loader. And doesn't have his own manufacturing capability, so he contracts out. He goes to Robbins and Lawrence upriver in Windsor, Vermont, and then they're busy enough that they think, well, we're going to open a satellite factory down in Hartford. So that's who originally built the building, is Robbins and Lawrence. Same story, Weed had a patent. Uh, he actually dies before the patent comes out, but some investors buy the patent. Who's going to manufacture it? Let's get Robbins and Lawrence. Where is Robbins and Lawrence? Let's go to Hartford. And so this, this idea of contract manufacturing, there's this understanding that there's expertise here in Hartford, and if you have a product, you can come here to have it made. And this sewing machine, which is absolutely gorgeous, also on loan from the Museum of Connecticut History. And again, there's this idea that the guns, guns makers' tools and techniques are sort of passed on to um, making sewing machines. You sold a million of those in 1890. Excellent. <laughs> absolutely gorgeous. One of my favorite artifacts. It's great. Albert Pope goes to the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition in 1876, sees a bicycle and thinks this is great. They're made in England at the time. He starts out as an importer, but thinks, I could make these here. Again, who can I get to make this, right? I'll go to Hartford. There's this sort of building expertise in Hartford. So he gets off the train from Boston with one of these high-wheel bicycles, rides down the street to everyone's amazement that's never seen a high-wheel bicycle, goes to the weed factory and says, can you make 50 of these, the first order? And they say, yeah, we'll try it. So he contracts out to weed. They produce this Columbia high-wheel bicycle. Eventually, they do safety bicycles, which you recognize today, right? Two wheels the same size, all that stuff. Pneumatic tires. Bicycles get big, and eventually Pope buys out weed. Pope is actually a great advocate, right? This paperweight that we have in our collection says, Colonel Albert Pope, founder of the manufacture of bicycles in the United States and the pioneer of the great movement for better American roads, the good roads movement. So he's really smart. He's like, if I have a bicycle, I actually need good roads for people to ride on them. Also, cars. Cars need roads. So the bicycle craze of the mid-1890s, the market gets saturated. Everyone's got a bike. Now what? Got to diversify. So a bike has tires. A bike has gears. Uh, there's a lot of things that are very similar, right? If you think about it, right? If you slap an engine on a bicycle, that's, that's where Maxim comes in. He actually hires... Maxim, uh, an MIT grad, and says, can you motorize this bicycle? He starts out with motorcycles, and then he starts trying to motorize carriages. And so that's where we get the horseless carriages. And um, I couldn't put a car in the exhibition, but I could put this cool radiator cap, uh, which said uh, Pope Hartford Automobiles and says Hartford, Connecticut, which is great. You know, long before Detroit. So this is like 1895, right? Long before Ford, 20 years. They're making cars in Hartford, steam, electric, and gas. And so really Hartford is the first Motown. Another contingency, right? So like Hartford could have been Motown. 
but making cars is capitally intensive, labor problems, Pope goes belly up. So it's not just about the products, but also the machines that make them. The tool industry is huge here, right? So Pratt & Whitney meet at the Colt Armory, or they both work at the Colt Armory. Then they go to work at Lincoln, make Lincoln Millers and things like that. Then they moonlight. Uh, they build Christopher Spencer's silk winding machine for Cheney. And then they start their own firm, their own eponymous firm. I wanted to get the sense of, of connections about how people and institutions are connected and how they come together. So this, the story that we tell in the, the gallery is about Billings and Spencer, a less well-known um, name than Pratt & Whitney. The mobility is crazy, right? If you think about Silicon Valley and, you know, you know, you work at this software firm for two years and you work for this one for two years and, you, you know, it's the same thing in the 1850s. I mean, look at all these different firms that these guys worked for. They had an incredible cutting-edge expertise and they were just always going to the next cool job opportunity or entrepreneurial opportunity. So at different points, Billings and Spencer know each other from Colt. They also have this little venture called Roper Repeating Arms that doesn't quite work out. They kind of reformulate it, start their own firm called Billings and Spencer, and it makes wrenches and screwdrivers, uh, those kinds of tools, but also big tools like drop hammers that, you know, and smash a part out from a blank. I haven't talked about the workers. I've kind of focused on the industrialists and the people who are running things from the top, but there's people tending these machines. A lot of them immigrants. What about them? This is one of my favorite, favorite photos in, in the exhibition. It's uh, an unknown trombonist. Dave and I have wondered about this, right, who this is, in the Colts Armory Band. Working on the machine, the, the factory floor is smelly, loud, uh, hot, dangerous. And so in order to keep your workforce happy, you've got to provide some amenities. And so we talked about Charter Oak Hall and the ballroom dances and the libraries, and this was all over town, right? So you. Uh, would provide worker housing, right? There's the um, sort of Pope uh, neighborhood and, and the workers' housing that's still over there by Coltsville that you can still see today. Pope Park, Pope Park, you want to keep the families happy and keep them coming back to work even though the conditions are dangerous. Uh, and yet, despite all of this, you still get a lot of labor unrest. It actually does Pope in, right? There's some big uh, strikes at different times. The last inventor I should talk about is Mark Twain, which I had no idea about until I started researching Hartford. So in addition to being one of the greatest humorists and authors in American history, he also has three patents. There's a publishing industry in Hartford, but he comes to visit his publisher, gets a tour of the um, Colt Armory, and you saw the quote, he wrote about it. And he's so impressed that he actually moves to Hartford, not too far from here, Stone's Throw, right? Writes many of his classics. Uh, one of the coolest things was getting a tour and seeing the little writing desk in, in the billiard room um, where he wrote all his classics, and it's just amazing. Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, right? It begins with, I was the superintendent at the armory, right? The, the protagonist is one of these mechanics, right? I mean, it's just amazing. And he held patents on a sort of garment strap, which you can think of as kind of like a suspenders, um, this self-pasting scrapbook, and a kind of history of trivia game, so yay history. But he loses his shirt. He goes from inventing to, uh, he actually made some pretty good money on the scrapbook, but he starts to become an investor, thinks he can re revolutionize um, publishing, invest in the page typesetter, it's a huge boondoggle, loses his money and has to move from Hartford. Go back on book tour in Europe to try to raise some money. To succeed in business, avoid my example. I'm going to gloss over se several decades here, right? So I, I mentioned that our exhibition sort of focuses on the period from 1850 to 1900. But we know that innovation continues in Hartford, right? Both Royal and Underwood set up here. Pratt & Whitney, of course. 
diversifies into aviation. There's this great aerospace industry here uh, with Pratt & Whitney, Sikorsky, now UTC. So I'm waving my hand of 50, 60 years, and then all of a sudden here we are, uh, sort of in the post-war era, in decline. And, and I hope you'll correct me on some of these finer points, but from what I understand, part of it is in deindustrialization, de but there's some other points here. What used to be known as Hartford included things across the river, right? Like East Hartford, um, West Hartford, Manchester. Over time, those little um, municipalities split off and formed their own units. And so all that's left is Hartford 18 square miles. And there's a sort of hemming in there, right? So if you're Colt and you need a new, more modern factory, you have to go outside of what is now Hartford to West Hartford. Or if you're Pratt & Whitney and you need an airport, you have to go across the river to test your engines. And so manufacturing begins to leave the city proper and go to the suburbs. Hartford perseveres. There's two anchors, right? State government and the insurance industry. So, you know, Hartford's still kicking along and from, from my point of view seems to be doing pretty well. There's been a lot of reinvestment in uh, different civic things like the Science Center, Excel Center Renovation, Capital Community College, and great news. Uh, Finally, after a lot of, of advocacy, we're going to get a Coltsville National Historical Park, which is great. So it's, it's great to see Hartford's re revitalization. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Eric Hintz and the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation and Jody Blankenship and the Connecticut Historical Society. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Norman and Patrick O'Sullivan. And thanks for being part of the Grading the Nutmeg family as we celebrate our first anniversary. Stay with us for more authentic and fascinating stories about Connecticut history in 2017.